Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am Neil Pollock. I am your host. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We're going to talk about a couple of new movies this week. First of all, it's The Marvels, the latest and possibly most disastrous offering from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Scott Gold will be here in just a couple of minutes to talk to me about that. We're also going to talk to Stephen Garrett. He will be back to talk about one movie this week, just one instead of four like we did last week. And we're going to talk about The Holdovers, which is uh, starring Paul Giamatti, directed by Alexander Payne. And it is in theaters now and is not very good. And I'm also going to talk to Omar Gayaga about some developments in the worlds of stand-up comedy. The ascension of Nate Bargatze and Taylor Tomlinson in particular, two comics who have been working the circuit for a while now and have recently come into strong public view with very high-profile appearances on TV. And they're both terrific and deserve your full attention. And Omar will be here in a little bit to talk to me about them. But first, let's talk about the Marvels with Scott Gold. And we'll be right back after this brief musical interlude. The last Marvel Cinematic Universe movie ever, The Marvels, opened this weekend. I say that jokingly, of course, because we'll never have a last Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, at least not for a very long time. But there's been a lot of talk that the Marvels is sort of the uh, Rubicon, where the MCU no longer matters in pop culture. And, uh, you know, the box office numbers maybe bear that out a little bit. But I think it's worth talking about the movie and what it might portend, for better or for worse, for the MCU in the future, since the MCU is the most important film franchise of the last decade and a half. And I have recruited... Scott Gold, our frequent contributor and someone who's almost as nerdy about the MCU as I am to talk to me about the Marvels. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back on the podcast. Always good to have you. And uh, I, you got to get away uh, to a little matinee of the Marvels today. It's a, kind of a matinee movie. It sort of feels like a Saturday, Sunday morning serial in contemporary movie form. I mean... I don't think people are wrong. This isn't a great film by any stretch of the imagination. There, there's there's a lot that's that's wrong with it. But I, I also don't personally feel like it's the overwhelming franchise ending disaster that people are making it out to be either. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was a terrible movie. I didn't also didn't think it was a great movie. It was fun. Definitely agree that it was, you know, matinee style like serial going back to like the 50s cliffhangers you know like it was a it was a good you know superhero romp i had a i had a good time but i'm sure i'll forget everything about it in like a week but uh you know it was fun i just think you know when i go into a marvel movie i have fairly high expectations because i think that's you know kind of the problem with the mcu is that they set up a high high bar for themselves especially with the avenger two-part finale and uh you know, when you come into these you know, movies with, you know, some of the newer characters and uh, especially from the television series, it just it doesn't it doesn't quite hit as hard. And I, I can't it's I'm having trouble quite putting my finger exactly on it. But I think it was fun, but it was also kind of meh. It was a side project is what it comes down to. And th that, that is part of the problem is that if you haven't been watching the Marvel TV series, you really it was going to be hard to figure out what exactly was going on here. I mean, Captain Marvel played by Brie Larson with her usual 
lack of affect is the main character ostensibly, but really there's two very important characters who um, come from TV almost entirely. Uh, Tayona Paris's character, uh, uh, Maria Rambeau, Monica Rambeau, I'm sorry, is um, you know is from WandaVision, and then uh, Kamala Khan or Ms. Marvel is from her own Ms. Marvel show. And I would also say, like, if you watch, you know, if you really think about it, really Ms. Marvel is the the main character of the movie. She's the one who has the biggest arc. She's the first one we see. She's the last one we see. So I feel like the movie is an attempt to sort of youthify the MCU through her eyes. And I will say that Iman Vellani, who plays Ms. Marvel, is probably is the uh, beating heart of the movie. And she's the only one involved of all the major characters who really seems to care that she's in it. Yeah, and I think, you know, Iman Vellani is a joy to watch. I think she's a lot of fun. I loved her in Miss Marvel. I thought it was a fun series. Definitely a more, you know, younger skewing audience and that shows. But uh, I think that definitely injected the humor, the heart. It can be a little annoying from time to time. She kind of leans in hard, the kind of the, the fangirl squee aspect of her character. And, you know, that's understandable, but it's, you know, really fun to watch her having grown and learned all of her superpowers from her own uh, her own arc and her own television show going into the larger MCU and how, you know, all of that small, small stage part, you know, parlays into the big stage. And she finally gets to meet, you know, her hero, Carol Danvers, and have some space adventures and all of that. And watching her get uh, acclimated to the MCU, which is something that she as a character has always wanted her whole life, is is really fun to watch. I just wish it were a, a slightly more enjoyable overall uh, arc or enjoyable overall film. Uh, One of the things that really held me back is that I kept asking myself, like, why, you know, I don't feel very invested in the story here. I felt like the stakes and the stakes are actually very big, but it doesn't feel that way plot wise. Well, we've seen the universe almost come to an end so many times, and we know that the universe doesn't doesn't come to an end. So, you know, and I also feel like I feel like they're um. You know, there it's kind of a another outpost of this Cree Scroll War, which like, you know, I know consumes the comic books a lot and has really consumed the MCU a little bit, but nobody but they've done such a poor job dramatizing it that uh no one really cares. And, you know, they stick Samuel L. Jackson, one of the great screen actors of all time, basically on a um space station for the entire run of the movie. And you know, and most of his job is like interacting with these CGI cats. And uh, it's just bizarre. I mean, he really, really seems to be phoning it in. Oh, 100% phoning it in. You know, he's got his he's got his paycheck now. But, you know, I think the writers are maybe not giving him, you know, more of an opportunity to kind of lean into the character. And he's not a main character here. I get it. But I got to see him twirl a gun. That was fun. And there was some fun aspects to the movie. I enjoyed, you know, one of the premises that somehow these three superheroes, their powers get entangled and they keep kind of Freaky Friday-ish swapping places with one another. And that leads to some fun moments. But it's just in the end, it's just kind of dismissed really easily. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, I guess I guess that happened. But it does result in some cool fight scenes. I agree. There, the, Some of the fight scenes are, are, are decent. There's also the bizarre sequence sort of in the middle of the movie where they go to a planet uh, where Carol Danvers is apparently like the princess or the queen. And this is a planet that can only communicate through song and dance so suddenly she's wearing like a captain marvel ball gown and like in, she's like she's in a scene from beauty and the beast or something that's a very strange very strange interlude uh i mean i don't think my eyes have rolled that hard 
for a Marvel project in a long time. It was definitely a low point in the movie for me. It fell so flat, so hard. I was like, Ugh, okay, we're turning this into a semi Bollywood musical kind of thing. And well, semi, they didn't even literally lean into it that hard. Uh, you yeah, know, exactly. Right. Brie Larson sings, but it's really boring. And the other characters dance, but they don't really dance. And yeah, it, it's, it's all, it, it, it's really bad. It's very cringe. Uh, and there, there are there's some other stuff like that in the film as well. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, that's the thing is like the, the best parts of the movie really are the last scene and then the mid credits sequence, which are the only ones uh, that seem to be upping the stakes and, you know, moving moving the story for, story forward. I can see why this movie isn't isn't hidden. You know, it doesn't have uh, marquee characters that people love. And it's it's really it's really not that good. I, I will. um any warn anyone who thinks he was trying to crow that this is the end of the MCU. I think that is that is a, a very premature thing to say. I mean, it could easily come back. I don't think it's going to occupy the central point of the of our pop culture discourse like it did for for many years. But I mean, let's let's not let's not put it away quite yet. Yeah, I mean, I think we have another decade at least of these movies to get through, and that gives uh, that gives them a lot of opportunity to kind of reclaim some high ground. And you know, maybe this is just a low point trying to recover from what was just such a strong series of movies and television shows. Like, how are you going to beat Iron Man and Captain America and the Hulk? Like, that is a talk about high bars. Like, that is really high. So, trying to lean into characters that maybe people don't know from the comics and building them up. It's it's going to be a little bit more difficult, but again, there are some bright spots. We do have some fun stuff to look forward to. I just don't think this was a great movie. There was a villain, but she wasn't really, you know, we don't really know that much about her. And, and she wasn't that villainous, really. Yeah, she wasn't that villainous. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, when uh, when Captain Marvel came out, a lot of, you know, there was there was so much hate online for Brie Larson and her character. I didn't think it was that bad. A little wooden, yes. You know, I felt like we didn't get to know her as a person, as a character, and we still really don't. And I think that's one of the mistakes that, you know, Marvel has made, and they haven't really done anything to correct that or to make her or Brie Larson's performance slightly, you know, less mannequin-like, uh, which is a shame because she's a great actress. Yeah, but she seems like she could really give a shit about this, you know, which which is too bad because if there's any character that has a chance to be sort of the center of the MCU is, is this character. And yet it's just, it's just not there. Um, maybe, you know, they're, they seem to be leaning uh, into a youth movement, especially toward the end of the movie. So uh, maybe, maybe that'll lead to something. I, I do want to say like in terms of the MCU and you know, it's been getting a lot of guff for some bad uh, shows and bad uh, movies. The secret invasion was a disaster, but I will say, you know, you and I talked a few weeks ago about Loki uh, we weren't really uh, digging season two uh, of Loki, and I have finished the season. And I will say it is kind of a satisfying last couple of episodes, and they do wrap it up well. And they show that they can still, given, you know, uh, good artistic control and good performances and, you know, the, the right story, that they can still deliver a sort of a satisfying arc. So I don't, again, I'm not going to um, proclaim it dead just yet, but I will, I will proclaim the Marvel's to be something that will be arriving on Disney plus long before Christmas. Yeah. And you know, we have the young Avengers I'm sure to look forward to, and that should be fun. But again, you know, Loki, you know, it's, you know, Tom Hiddleston, it's going to be really, really hard to top that and all of the characters that we've really grown to know and love and actors that are fantastic and that have, 
you know, really grown into their characters. So finding new characters and new actors to really, you know, reach that level is going to be really challenging for the MCU. But at the same time, they have a lot of wiggle room. They have some, I think they have some time to really reclaim some ground and give us the things that we really love. You know, it's possible too that, you know, comic books are supposed to be for children and maybe they're going to sort of reinvent themselves as being, you know, shows and movies more for children. Sometimes I watch this stuff and I'm like, what am I doing? I'm going to be dead soon. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, if they lean into the, the, the youth thing, I'm, I'm 100% on board. Again, I really enjoyed uh, Miss Marvel and Iman Vellani and, you know, Hawkeye and Haley uh, Steinfeld. And I think, you know, we're clearly from the mid credit scene, we're going to be seeing young, seeing young Avengers. We're going to be seeing some more young characters taking the helm. And uh, I'm here for it. I can't wait to see what happens. Well, you know, if nothing else, at least they uh, want to be in the movies. And that that is a switch from sort of some of the older cast members. So there we have it. The Marvels is in theaters now and will be on your television very soon. Scott Gold, thank you so much. And I'll I'll talk to you the next time there's a a dorky uh, cinematic or TV project uh, on the docket. Thanks so much, Neil. I, uh, I don't anticipate not being a dork anytime soon. It's hard to imagine. All right. Talk to you later. (laughs) Take care. Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I had you guys stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. You're going to get me fired. This is your Rubicon. Do not cross the Rubicon. The Holdovers. Stephen Garrett is back on the show. It seems like only yesterday that Stephen and I were doing our Siskel and Ebert routine and talking about four movies. Four movies in 30 minutes. And now we're going to talk about one movie in 30 minutes, or at least at least for seven or eight minutes. Uh, this week's movie I'm talking about with Stephen is The Holdovers, which uh, is a piece of nostalgic Oscar bait from director Alexander Payne, who made uh, Sideways and The Descendants and About Schmidt and Election, a bunch of movies, he made a bunch of movies, all, all of which are always um, very well received by uh, literary film going Types and uh, the holdovers is a uh, reunion of sorts with his sideways star Paul Giamatti and uh, I don't know Stephen I mean I don't think either you or I liked liked this movie much I was not thrilled by it I mean I was kind of excited all right so full disclosure uh, my understanding is the film was shot at uh, a private school called uh, a boarding school rather called Deerfield Academy where both of my brothers went and uh, I went to a um, pre-prep school that was literally across the street or across the road from Deerfield. So I spent a lot of time on that campus when I was younger. And uh, so I was very, uh, I had a lot of affection for that place and that period. And this is 10 years before that, this is said 1970, but shocker, not a lot of furniture had been changed by the early eighties. Um, so a lot of it looked very, very familiar. So I had heard about the movie. I was looking forward to seeing it. And then once I saw it and realized it was this kind of fetishistic, early 70s movie made by a fanboy kind of seen too many Hal Ashby movies and not taking the right lessons from them. This is the saccharine feel good, you know, curmudgeon, but misunderstood professor who gets stuck with, 
you know, this poor kid who nobody loves and is alone on campus and they surprise find a way into each other's hearts. They bond. Yeah. You know, I, I was like, it was kind of like to me, it felt like a movie from the early to mid seventies crossed with dead poets society, you know, loving, learning to love the eccentric teacher. I mean, except that Paul Giamatti's character isn't uh, eccentric and lovable in the way that Robin Williams was in Dead Poets Society. I mean, he's he is a, a a total asshole. And he's an asshole. He's an asshole. He's a snob. He's a loser. And look, I don't want to be prejudiced here, but there literally is a point in the movie where uh, Angus Tully, which is his, his young ward, and they go to Boston for the weekend, and he tells him, you smell like fish, You smell, especially at the end, a, end of the day. <laughs> and, and Paul Giamatti <laughs> reveals that he has a glandular disorder that does in fact, make him smell like fish. And, well, the movie is not in smell-o-vision. You know, I couldn't smell him, but I but I couldn't not smell him at the same time. I was I was relieved to get out of the movie, so I didn't have to think about him smelling. I don't think I'll, I'll ever stop thinking about what, what that must have smelled like <laughs> and what, what it must have been like. You know, and he, has, and he has these weird googly eyes. He talks about his sweaty palms. I'm like, well, he's got a he's got a lazy eye, I think. Right. And he, doesn't he challenge him like you tell me which one's the lazy eye or the, is it a glass eye? One or the other. And they call and they call him walleye. And I thought it was because of his eye, but it's because he smells like fish. So, you know, <laughs> to me, I don't know. I mean, it's just it was just hard to generate any empathy for this character, especially because he wasn't cool and he actually was really blinkered in it the way he looked at the world and it, it was just very very strange um the the one thing i i thought was good about this film is there's the third major character who is this um this morbidly this morbidly obese african-american head chef named mary uh she who was uh, played by divine joy randolph who i thought gave a wonderful performance and will certainly uh, get a uh, supporting actress Oscar nomination for this. And she's like hovering over the stew pots in the kitchen, you know, drinking bourbon and chain smoking and cursing. And, you know, and she, but she has a tragic backstory. Her son's father died in a construction accident. Her son was this great student at the Academy who then, but she couldn't afford to send him to Princeton or wherever. So he went off to Vietnam and died. And so she's, she's a miserable grieving mother who has to deal with all these privileged kids who get these deferments. From Vietnam. And I thought it was a really good performance. I will say that the film's anti-Vietnam sentiment doesn't feel very earned. It's the second movie in recent months that has gone hard in the paint against U.S. involvement in Vietnam. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God somebody stood up and, and said something. At last, we're, we're, we're reconsidering <laughs> that, that, that period in our history. You know, it's like as if people weren't already talking about making movies about how bad Vietnam was during the war itself. You know, it's not, it's, it's not like a, it's not like we're in denial. Uh, so but this movie thinks that it's cool because of that. And, you know, I don't know exactly what it's, you know, is it standing up against? boarding school privilege is it celebrating it you know it's it's hard to really it doesn't it has kind of a, this ambiguous center i couldn't agree more and you know also like feeding off of that okay you're gonna make a movie that has prep school students in it fine and i've already admitted that that is somewhat of my background so i was looking forward to seeing how those kids are kind of depicted and surprised they are depicted in the most shallow way one-dimensional you know, they're what they're actually like if the movie starts out with maybe five students who are stuck behind during the Christmas break. And I, it feels like for about a good 20 minutes, Alexander Payne has no idea what to do with them. And then literally deus ex machina, a helicopter comes and takes most of them away 
or all but this one kid. And then the movie really starts. But I was like, what is happening here? And then you have some Asian kid and you're doing some like short round type shtick. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just, what are you doing here, man? Well, and you know, I mean, you may or may not have read uh, Curtis Sittenfeld's uh, novel Prep, which is you know, 20 plus years old at this point. But that, that to me was the definitive chronicle of uh, old school uh, prep school culture. And it's it's fantastic, and the, and the students have a lot of depth, and that it has a real plot and you know real nuance. And I'm, well, I didn't feel like I thought the the Dominic Sessa, who's a first time movie actor, uh, he's a Carnegie Mellon student. You know, he was quite good. I thought as yeah. the only, uh, as Tully. You know, he was like he was, was watchable, and he didn't smell like fish, so that that helped. <laughs> uh, there, it's not, it's not it's nothing against him, and I felt like his character was reasonably well rounded. But you know, it wasn't really a prep school. You know, he was just like this lost boy who was trapped in this in this freezing boarding school with Paul Giamatti. For two weeks, uh, like like the the uh, the worst detention you can imagine. It honestly, it seems like a scenario or a um, just this sort of structure that they wanted to have. Let's set it at a prep school because that way we get these people stuck with each other and they're feeling unloved. And let's explore what that is, you know. So I I I, I don't really feel like it. To your point, that book sounds like it actually does flesh out. It really tells you what that experience is like. This doesn't. It, it just feels like it could have been set anywhere, you know, as long as we can have characters separated from people that they love or people who just, you know, characters who feel unloved. Well, and and again, like, you know, it, yes, it has a vibe and a sort of a look of, of a movie from the 1970s. But, you know, those movies were gritty and realistic uh, because they were attempting to expose problems and moral rot of the time, whereas... I don't think anyone really is looking for an expose of the moral rot of 1970. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> we 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 know all about it because we watched movies that were made in the 70s, and we <laughs> also I mean, that's the thing. Li- lived in yeah. the 70s. I was born in I was born in 1970. <laughs> I was born in 1972. Goddamn it! Yeah. And yeah. those those movies were like you're saying they were anti institutional. You know what is the institution that Alexander Page is raging against in this? Like what? Like boarding schools? A boarding school? Not even boarding schools. Yeah, a boarding <laughs> school, and not even a boarding school. A professor at a boarding school whose life went sideways, so to speak. You know, incidentally, his character inside of me is so much better. If you want to play a crusty jerk. He did it in a way that was actually weirdly lovable or at least compelling. This guy, I found no way of getting into him uh, to the point where I would actually care about him. I literally, yeah. I agree. As soon as I heard that he smelled like fish, that's all I could think about until the movie ended. <laughs> it's a real bad. spoiler. It's very suggestive when you don't have anything else going on. In yeah, really, I think they should have changed it to, you smell like Oreos. <laughs> you smell like snickerdoodles. It's Christmas themed. It should be gingerbread cookies or something. Yeah, when it's something that smells good, you know, and, <laughs> and and instead you get you smell like fish. So this movie kind of smells like fish. The reason we're talking there about the reason we're talking about it is because I do think that it's going to get. I mean, it's going to get some Oscar consideration. It might be one of the ten pictures nominated. It you know, and I certainly is going to get some acting nominations. So I think I think it's worth it for uh, people of good sense to, uh, to just to say a little little word uh, of warning about the holdovers because people out there seem to love it, and I don't quite get it. People seem to love it. Look, they're, as you say, the acting is great. They're really good, you know, especially um, Divine is great. Divine Joy Randolph is the most fleshed out character, the most interesting character. And it, there's a point where they leave campus and you kind of get a glimpse at her private life, her family life and everything. 
because she goes to visit relatives. And, and, you know, that I almost wish that we had stayed there because I, I want to know more about that. I, I really don't want to stick around with this guy who smells like fish because he's just a jerk. He's just a jerk. But that's what you get in The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne, currently in uh, quality cinemas wherever you see movies and probably on streaming at some point in the near future. Stephen Garrett, just one movie this week. Thank you for your service. I will talk to you soon. Talk to you then. Every so often in the culture, uh, things change. I guess they call it a vibe shift now. And these things are sort of brewing for years or months. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, they seem to burst into the public consciousness. And suddenly we're dealing with a new cultural form. And I feel like that happened a couple of weeks ago when there were some developments in the world of stand-up comedy. Uh, I wrote a piece about it for Book and Film Globe Um there was a, uh, a really outstanding Saturday Night Live hosting appearance by the comedian Nate Bargatze. They got a lot of praise and suddenly people were like, who is this guy and why is he so funny? And then a few days later, Stephen Colbert announced that Taylor Tomlinson, a young female comedian from Orange County, would be the new host of uh, the show that comes on after his on CBS. She'd be replacing the repulsive uh, James Corden. And Taylor Tomlinson is a lot, a lot less repulsive. <laughs> I have recruited our resident comedy expert, Omar Gayaga, to talk to me about these two uh, comedians and what they represent and why they're funny. And here he is now. Hello, Omar. Hey, Neil. Hey, so let's talk about Nate uh, Bargatze first, because he kind of, he had his moment of ascension uh, just a few days before Taylor Tomlinson. So I kind of vibed into Nate Bargatze about six months ago. He started showing up on my Facebook reels a lot. And I, I just little clips and I, I was like, oh, this this guy is very funny. <laughs> he's very natural. He's he's very normal. And um, and then it just sort of increased from there. I started like watching longer clips. And then I started I was uh, playing poker in Oklahoma about a week ago and I listened to his comedy album while driving home. And I was like, this is this guy is hilarious. And then and then he then he hosted Saturday Night Live and and that that stand up monologue from Saturday Night Live was, um, you know, one of the best opening monologues I've I've ever seen on the show. It was just so funny and so natural and so normal. And he, of course, his, uh, he had a sketch where he portrayed George Washington that was also very fun, very Seinfeldian in, in its observations about some of the absurdities of, of our culture. And I thought that was great, too. So and I know that you've you've been aware of him and his work for a while. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize until maybe the SNL thing, which I, I recapped that for the LA Times and and was was very pleased. You know, I thought he was I thought I agree his monologue was was right up there with Chappelle and, and John Mulaney. And um, I mean, I, I thought it was just a very well crafted, really solid, you know, what, 10 minutes of comedy. Um, you know, and, but those of us who've, who've been following him or, or listened to his albums or seen his specials, like we, we know that that's, that's just what he does. He's just very clever, very funny under the guise of this sort of every man, uh, you know, I'm just a dumb guy. I don't understand anything like, no, your comedy's very too smart for that. It's what I wrote for the LA times is that, you know, he may say he's a dumb guy who doesn't understand modern times, but the way he uses language and the way he, uh, observes, um, you know, proves that he's very intelligent and very observant and, and just, you know, he's just developed a really, uh, personal persona that works for that type of material. I think I met him eight or nine years ago at South by Southwest and he was doing one of those thankless hosting gigs, you know, like, 
some sort of tech, uh, tech bro, you know, startup thing that he was having to host. And I was on stage with him and he was very nice, very, very, very nice, personable guy. But, you know, it was one of those thankless gigs where no matter what he, you know, how funny he was, the audience was just going to, <laughs> so it was, but, but, you know, he's been around for a long time. I mean, that's the thing. I, he's not this overnight sensation. He's been working the clubs and, and doing the grind for, you know, I, I don't know how long he's been out there, but it's been at least a decade or two or two. Yeah. He's 44 years old. So, you know, he's not a young, and you look at some of the earlier clips and he's this like kind of pudgy, you know, young dude wearing flannel and like, not, not very slick. And a lot of his material is about just being drunk guy who likes fast food. And here's the thing, like, you're right. He's obviously very intelligent, very observant, very perceptive, but he's not educated. He talks about this a lot. You know, he went, he dropped out of community college after one semester and just sort of tried to make his career in comedy. So he's not a, you know, he's not a bookworm. One of his, the funniest jokes in his um, SNL monologue was about how books have so many words. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, but I, I, I don't, I don't believe that though. I mean, as, as, as as verbally sharp as his material is, you know, maybe he has help. Maybe he has writers that help him. Oh, no, no. I mean, I think I think he's intelligent. I mean, there's no he's I mean, got a very sharp mind. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He's great. You know, he's just he's so incredibly observant about uh, modern life. And but but the persona he's crafted as being this like, you know, sort of befuddled house husband who can't doesn't understand why uh, anyone wants to wake up before 9 a.m. is first of all, very relatable to me. And second of all, it's just, it's just he's just funny. And he's got a lot of wit and, you know, he and the thing that I liked about I like about his comedy and I pointed this out in the piece is that it's essentially apolitical. Right. Like he, you know, he's from Tennessee. Uh, he's from, you know, sub- suburban Nashville or a small town in Tennessee. But he's not he doesn't really like register as anything politically. So he's someone because of his like regular guyness can is relatable to red state comedy fans. And he doesn't, you know, he's not political. And he's, so he's, he's fine for blue staters. Um, and I just find it refreshing in an age where politics and comedy are so inseparable and so um, divided, right? You have, you know, we, I live in Austin and you're certainly, a, you know, of Austin, if you don't actually live in the city limits, you know, we're the home to the comedy mothership of Joe Rogan. We're the it's the capital of uh, libertarian edgelord comedians. And while there's a place for that in the comedy firmament, for sure, and I, I appreciate some stuff there, Nate Bargatze doesn't fall into that category. And he also doesn't fall into, um, you know, woke leftist comedians, you know. And so I, he, he kind of straddles the line. That's what I mean when I'm talking about a vibe shift. Like he is like a, a model going forward of being like a, someone who is relatable and modern and not out of touch. But he's also not like he's not divisive. No, and, and I was going to bring up the the comedy mothership stuff because that felt like that certainly felt like where comedy was going uh, the last couple of years is but during the pandemic and after the pandemic, I mean it felt like that's sort of where you know the leading players of stand up comedy were going. And maybe we're just seeing that because it was we're near Austin, uh, but yeah, I mean you could take any twenty or thirty seconds from from Nate Bargatze's stand up and put it on TikTok or put it on Real, and it's going to be funny and relatable. And I mean I, the joke I keep coming back to from the SNL monologue is the one about the two grandmothers meeting at the door, you know, the, this mistaken uh, identity. And the joke was, it's like two dogs meeting at a fence. They're going to be there for a while. Like that's such an elegant, well-crafted, short, perfect joke. And and again, that I came back to like, he is a craftsman. He's really good at what he's doing. And so it's no wonder that that stuff takes off on TikTok or, or Reels because, you know, you can take any 30 seconds from his act and everyone's going to be like, oh yeah, that's funny. That's great. You know, like no matter where you're from. Speaking of taking 30 seconds 
uh, and putting it on TikTok or on Reels, uh, Taylor Tomlinson, that's how I uh, kind of vibed into her as well. I mean, I know she's been, she's younger than Nate Bargatze. I think she's she's maybe 30, if, if a day. Um, but she also is like a, a really smart, funny, relatable, essentially a political comic. I think she's maybe a little more political than Bargatze only because she's like a young woman who uh, is, you know, forceful and out in the world and, you know, doesn't, doesn't give a crap what anyone thinks about her. So she's, she, you know, in, in that sense, it's political, but that's also like a type that people on women on the right and the left can identify with. Right. I mean, and she's from orange County. So, it, you know, it's, which is kind of like um, Republican Los Angeles. Right. So she's not, and she grew up in the church, like in a conservative church. So she's, she kind of also straddles these, these worlds. And she's also extremely funny and her jokes are very well crafted. And her perso- her stage persona is, just so confident and fun to watch. Yeah. I, I have a friend who saw her perform in, uh, I think it was San Antonio a few months ago and on her tour and her, I think her tour was selling out. Like it, it did very, very well. And uh, she's the friend, the friend of mine that went to the show is pretty liberal. And she took one of her Republican lady friends and they both loved her. They both thought she was fantastic. I mean, I think she definitely crosses those lines and, and is approachable. And I think, you know, kind of what's unsaid in, in, in this whole segment about, about these two comedians is they're both white. They're both, you know, uh, she's younger, he's older, but they're both white comedians. And a lot of the sort of where comedy has been going the last few years is let's be more inclusive. Let's have more comedians of color. Let's have people like uh, Hassan Minaj and we won't get into his, his troubles, but, but, you know, but that's sort of been kind of what's been the new face of comedy the last few years is let's get more different perspectives and, and let's not have the same, you know, white guys against the the brick wall uh, sort of vibe. But I think these comedians sort of transcend that. I think they're both savvier than that. And they both are, like you said, kind of crossing different demographics and different uh, political spectrums uh, and do it very in a very savvy way. I think that, I don't think it's by accident. I think they're both doing it very intentionally. Oh, for sure. I mean, they're ob- this is obviously these are highly crafted personas, but at the same time, it isn't uh, it isn't phony feeling, right? Like you don't feel like they're you know they're they're not pandering. I think that they're they're this is actually uh, a model of how to go forward. And, you know, and, and they both work fairly clean. I mean, Nate Bargatze's comedy is fully PG as far as I'm concerned. There's a Tomlinson has more sort of some more dildo jokes, maybe, you know, here and there. Um, a little bit more sex. Con- there's no sex content in Bargatze's. But, you know, Tomlinson, there's some. But it's it's still like she you know, spends a lot of time talking about, you know, her mental health issues and, you know, dating, but not in a, like, a, you know, in a sex kitten kind of way. Like, I feel like there is this sort of trend of like, attractive blonde comedians just like doing the most outrageous sexual content you can imagine. And Taylor Tomlinson, well, she even refers to herself in a routine. I love this routine, but she calls herself subjectively hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She reminds me a little bit of, of um, Chelsea Handler before Chelsea Handler, you know, was, was more ubiquitous on TV and, and got more political. I, I think like that, that she reminds me of kind of earlier career, uh, Chelsea Handler, where it was more about kind of going out and partying and drinking and kind of living that sort of lifestyle that that's, what she reminds me more of, but Chelsea Handler, yeah, Chelsea Handler, I feel like is someone who you felt like she the more famous and richer she got, the less funny she got, and I'm I'm yeah. hoping that doesn't happen. <laughs> exactly. I'm hoping that doesn't happen with Taylor Tomlinson, who is about to become extremely famous and rich. I mean, she's going to be the only female late night talk show host, and that is that's in, kind of incredible, you know, considering where she came from and how young she is, and I and I think you know she's a good choice because she's like. I, I can't imagine she's going to be shy talking to any 
person who's going to come on. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of writing staff she puts together and, uh, you know, what kind of material she comes up with. Because, you know, that late night, uh, late, late night talk show uh, segment has um, has produced some, some great comedy from uh, Conan O'Brien to Craig Ferguson. And it was only um, re- in recent years become rotted out with carpool karaoke and other stuff that James Corden has subjected us to. Yeah, I, th- I think the sort of the mainstays right now that that are, are still producing decent stuff are Seth Meyers and and uh, Colbert. I mean, I think other than that, it's sort of a it's become a bit of a dead zone <laughs> on late night. Well, I, I and I would even disagree with you about those two, honestly. Like uh, to me, like after after Conan um, went off the air, I, I, yeah, I loved the Conan O'Brien show. After that went off the air, I felt like comedy just kind of became this. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I I don't like it. I don't watch the late night comedy. But I I would. Uh, I don't. I don't. I probably am not going to stay up and try to tune my antenna to. CBS to watch Taylor Tomlinson, but I'm certainly the clips will be available. So I don't, you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, to, to give you a, 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 an idea of how long it's been that we've been talking about, why isn't there a female host of late night, you know, on the main networks? It's like, we were talking about Amy Sedaris would be great. <laughs> you know, like that's how far back. Yeah. But I think, I think both of these, um, these acts are going to be with us for a long time. And I do, I think it, it, it it's a, it's a way forward and it's, and it's nice because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not, um, Whole, it's not boring and vanilla, but it is wholesome in a way and, and relatable. And I, I appreciate that after years and years of just of the stand up wars, let's call them. Yeah. And, I, and I'll make one last point. I know, I know we're wrapping up, but uh, I think the thing I led with on the on the L.A. Times review of the, um, of the SNL episode was that I think half the country already knows of Nate Bargatze. They've seen him on TikTok. They've seen him live. You know, he's been touring, you know, all, all these states. And half the country, you know, even comedy nerds were like, who's this guy? You know, I, I really think there was a big divide before this SNL appearance between the people who already knew of, of him, people who already appreciated his style of humor, and then people who were like, him? Who's he? <laughs> and and then, you know, hopefully we're, we're blown away by the monologue. But there, there was some really clever stuff on that episode, even apart from the monologue. I thought the Party Lake thing sketch was very clever and very, and very you know, red statey. So like, yeah, I, I think they're both going to make their marks. All right, Nate Bargatze and Taylor Tomlinson, the new faces of comedy. Uh, perhaps Omar and I spend a little bit too much time geeking out about this stuff and thinking about it, but that's <laughs> that's why we do a show. We're, we're sharing it with you. I hope you guys um, can all uh, can check them out. They're they're going to show up on your TikTok or on your Facebook reels, whether you ask for them or not. So you might as well. Omar, thank you so much. Thanks, Neil. All right. Thank you, Omar, Nate Bargatze, and Taylor Tomlinson, the new faces of American comedy now appearing on your TV screens and on your Facebook reels and wherever else comedians make themselves known these days. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about The Holdovers and to Scott Gold for talking to me about The Marvels, both movies in theaters now. I am Neil Pollock. I am your host. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We put out fresh content nearly every day. We put out a fresh podcast nearly every week, and I will happily talk to you soon. Original Production.